largely investing has been figured out. It's not that difficult now to get a great portfolio at very low cost. All these other things play a much bigger part in, in our lives. Life is messy. We're messy. Humans are messy. People get divorce and there's death and there's all kinds of things that happen that can affect your financial life. So you can't spreadsheet the whole thing. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Maslick. To all the new listeners, welcome. To the returning listeners, glad to have you back. Today, I'm thrilled to have two fantastic guests on the podcast, Ben Felix and Cameron Passmore from PWL and Rational Reminder Podcasts joined me in a fabulous conversation. From the moment I started listening to their podcast, I was captivated by their professionalism and their unwavering dedication to providing evidence-based information on sensible investing and financial decision-making. In a world dominated by short videos and sound bites, the Rational Reminder podcast has been a breath of fresh air for me, offering in-depth discussions every Thursday morning. Today, we take a behind-the-scenes look at the men behind the mics as Ben and Cameron share their stories. Throughout this episode, you will hear the unwavering dedication of both Ben and Cameron to delivering this sound investment advice to the listeners. And their discussions don't only just encompass the technical aspects of money, but it touches upon many of the crucial elements of life satisfaction and well-being. I've noticed what sets them apart is not only their ability to be focused on their mission, but also to be open and flexible when needed, adapting to new perspectives and insights that add value to the listener's experience. Make sure you stay to the end as RootHub is here and joins us to create an instant anthem for Ben and Cameron. Finally, before we head into the show, if you're interested in getting your own instant anthem based on your money story, head over to www.financialanthem.com and you'll see the details on how you can get your own custom financial anthem song. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Ben and Cameron. So Cameron and Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having us. I welcome you today because over the last four years or so, your voices have accompanied me on many countless Thursday morning runs or bikes. And I always could rely on this Thursday morning is getting consistent sound information in the realm of financial planning, money, and how it relates to our own stories. And it always has been 
something I've noticed, and I know many other people, that it's your unwavering dedication to delivering this sensible information based on evidence-based research that really has made a lasting impact on me that I've really appreciated. And then I also felt your podcast really sets apart from many other ones is not only bringing this evidence based on portfolio construction, the nuances of financial planning, but also your deeper understanding for the broader aspects of life, well-being, the pursuit of a good life, and finding meaning in our financial decisions. So today, I thought it'd be fun to uncover the story behind the Rational Reminder podcast, allowing us to dive into the depths and explore insights, wisdoms that you guys have found along the way. And as we were talking at the beginning, before we record it, to add a, add a little magic, or as Root Hub says, it's wizard-like skills, that's Root Hub, he's going to create in real time a song based on our conversation. So for the listeners, they, they've heard him a few times, many times now, be sure to stick to the end. So I thought to start, Ben, my first question is for you. Over the pandemic, we have heard you talk about your living room, the rock climbing walls. I believe there was some turf, the trampoline. While I had a certain vision what this looked like, recently on your guys' Instagram feed, you posted a picture of the new 10-foot basketball hoop. And my vision that I had created for this living room was completely false. And I saw a whole bunch of comments online that said, <laughs> Ben, do you live in an old church? So my first question is, do you live in an old church? <laughs> no, it's just a house with a big open front room. That's why we bought it. I mean, you saw in the picture, it looks, it's, it looks a little unfinished. It's a little rough. It does look like an abandoned church or an abandoned school or something. We saw that and we're like, wow, we could do a lot of fun stuff with that space. I think it was unappealing to a lot of people, but very appealing to but us. That's what's so, so interesting, interesting about, about Ben is that, is that you're such a nonconformist. Like you knew what would make you guys happy. And you didn't worry about what other people thought as a very non-traditional living room. But you guys love it, yeah. which is awesome. We do love it. I think you're probably right. But it was crazy. This is like peak pandemic housing madness. And we, we got this house. No, there were no other bids. We got it meaningfully under the ask price. It was a very calm, long close. <laughs> very calm situation, though. No, uh, none of the craziness that you saw in the rest of the housing market. Anyway, that's the story. Just a house. Just the house. Well, it's, it's wonderful. And in the pandemic, we turned, or maybe my wife wouldn't say we, I turned our garage into a hockey shooting gallery and rock climbing wall, which I thought was a big space until I saw that living room. So <laughs> my son would be very jealous of that space. It's a great space. It really is. Looks wonderful in those windows. It looked like nice trees out there. Yeah. And before we get into the, the, the story here, Cameron, I have a question for you. Over the pandemic... We have heard a lot about your reading, the Kindle book a week. You've started the, the reading challenges. And it seems like this love for Peloton. As I was diving into online forums about you guys, I kept seeing these questions of people saying like, how does Cameron read and bike so much? So my question is for you is where do you find the time? And this is more or less curated from the online world to ride that Peloton and read so many books. It's actually not that big a deal as I try to highlight in many podcasts, it's just a daily habit. Like I just ride 30 minutes a day, which I used to go to a gym pre-pandemic, which would be an hour at the gym and 20 minutes there and back. All I've done is taken that time and put it into a little bit on the Peloton. And then I only read an hour a day, 45 minutes to an hour a day. But if you do that every single day, you become a reader. As I've said many times, the books just melt away. I don't read Hold any on. more than that. Cameron's barely human. <laughs> he's, he's underselling this. Cameron, what time do you wake up in the morning? Yeah, I get up early, but doesn't mean I'm reading for three hours in the morning. I get up at quarter to five. See? 
Now, we both happen to be lucky enough that we're, we're kind of in a, in a groove in a zone where we love what we do. We love the research we do, but I'm not reading more than an hour a day. You're the superhuman. You've got four kids under the age of what, eight or nine? Like you've got the really busy household. I don't know. I, I used to get, when I first started working with Cameron at PWL, I used to get to the office at 7 a.m. And Cameron's already been there for three hours or something. <laughs> Heading out for lunch break. <laughs> well, you guys manage your time both very well. And I, I thought about that you as well, Ben. I have two kids, let alone four. And the work you guys have been doing is remarkable. I think a good place to start would be in episode 214, you guys had Jay Von Babel, where he discussed the influences of identity and groupthinks, our groupthinks and the impact it has on our behaviors. Considering both of you entered what I believe the podcast world in 2018, prior to that, I don't believe you guys were podcasting. Now you can see over 250 episodes later, over, I believe it's somewhere over 5 million listeners. It's safe to say that you guys are podcasters, which means that your identity perhaps at some point in time may have shift to being a content creator or a podcaster. I don't think so. Sorry to cut off your question. I don't feel That's like right. a podcaster or a content creator at all whatsoever. Ben, I heard you say on a different interview that you do not feel like a podcast or sorry, a content creator. Yeah. Let me continue with this final way of questioning. I thought you would say that, Ben, because I can't <laughs> remember who it was. It was a YouTube video. And you said the exact same thing. But yeah. according to his research, so whether maybe you don't identify as the podcaster itself, but I thought his research was interesting on how group think can shape how we view goals, responsibilities, and our norms. And I thought the responsibility was interesting, especially with the large amount of episodes you guys are producing. So whether it is not a podcaster or not, Ben, this, whatever you want to call it, this new identity that you've formed, the Rational Reminder podcast, how would you describe it's not a podcast identity, but the identity of Rational Reminder co-host has created on you in terms of what you feel you need to bring to your audience? I guess said another way, has the identity of being a Rational Reminder co-host impacted your thoughts on goals, responsibilities, and norms you have for your audience? There's a certain level of responsibility that I feel, but I, I don't know if that's in the... Jay Von Babel sense changed my identity, but I, I, I think that, or, or how I identify myself, but I, but I think that it's gotten to a point now where, you know, in, in the early days, it was not ideal, but acceptable if a podcast was released three hours late because, you know, whatever. But now it's at a point where it's very, I don't know what I'd call it, institutional. Like there's processes and multiple people involved and multiple layers to make sure that we deliver this, this product, even though it's free, that people expect. And so there's a certain level of responsibility there where I think we, we, we have a strong commitment to producing really good quality content every week. But yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I really don't think that podcasting or YouTube or anything like that have affected the way that I see myself. And, I, and like I said, when I cut you off, I've never felt that I am or ever became a YouTuber. I just don't feel it. I don't know. But you are, you are driven to quality. Like you have a very high bar of what you do produce. So you look at the papers you produce, be it, you know, finding and funding a good life or the recent paper on income optimization from corporations. Like these are very in-depth, thoughtful, high quality productions without a doubt. So do you view yourself as a, as a content 
producer, maybe not, but the quality is there. That hasn't changed with the development of the podcast because that's something I think, no. and that's probably why no. people cared to listen to us when we started making content. It's like, oh, they're working hard to make good content, which we've continued to do. And maybe more so because of that responsibility that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. So just out of curiosity, because like Cameron said, those papers are, are wonderful. Is it the identity, I guess, you associate with content producer being these YouTube instant or quick fix hits that you have this aversion towards? Because what do you call yourself then? What is that identity? Because you're creating content, but I, I feel like you just don't want to associate with the TikTok content or YouTube shorts. I don't care about association. You can call me a creator if you want to. I don't, it doesn't bother me. When I think of a YouTuber, it's very frequent content. It's very current content. And I, I, I don't do either of those things. So I just never, I feel like I do research and then post about it on the internet as opposed to creating content for the sake of entertainment, which is how I, I think a lot of what I would, what I would consider a, a, a YouTuber in general is that they're creating content first. I feel like I'm doing research and then talking about it. It definitely comes across that there's a lot of intention in the stuff you put out. While it might be worth worthwhile to see what Ben cooks and eats in the morning, I'm sure this is, some people might like that, but I, I personally like the, the papers. <laughs> Cameron, how about you? Has the podcast created an identity for you at all? It probably has. I don't think we're conscious of it. We just focus on the content. But the truth is, I mean, as you know, many people reach out to us especially me on LinkedIn each week. And I have lots of conversations with listeners from all over the world. And it's funny the reaction when they see us. Cause I'm just, we're just two guys that are doing the best we can to put out reasonable content, right? But clearly there is an identity that people have about us, but I, I don't think we're actively thinking of our, mm-hmm. ourselves as. How about either you can answer this one. How about the podcast as itself? Like if you had to describe whether it's identity or the, the mission you seek to serve, how would you answer someone is, what, what is the Rational Reminder podcast? What does it do? That's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if we have a, a very well thought out answer to that. It's something that we've, we've talked about ourselves. Like, Hopefully it helps people make better financial yeah, that's decisions. The, that's the mission of the podcast, for sure. But what is, what, what is this thing? Like We, we talk about but that all the time. You, what is this thing that we've created? But in one hour a week, plus or minus, on your runs every Thursday, Sean, you can pick up a few ideas, no matter what your level of financial competence is. There's always something. Yes, yeah, some episodes are much denser than others. I will grant you that. But an hour a week, you can, you can learn something. And I think it's worth investing that amount of time, be it on this podcast or some other podcast. I think it's, a, it's part of the life that does deserve attention. Yeah, I think it goes back to what you were saying about the reading. It's just that one hour a day, one hour a week, and it compounds over the years. I have a few more questions about the podcast itself. And again, I'm, I'm coming from a listener's perspective here. But I'm always curious about origin stories, specifically origin story in this case about Rational Reminder Podcast. You guys started your careers from what the internet tells me, portfolio managers, and then moved into portfolio managers that talk on a mic who aren't podcasters. And what draws me into this narrative or the importance of origin stories is the, the field of narrative psychology is really fascinating to me is how X things happen that unconsciously or conscious to us influence our decisions later in life. So to your own comfort levels, when you look back at your own stories, are there any significant events memories or 
businesses that you guys started as young kids that would, you can connect the dots later on in life being like, ah, okay, you know, I see that interest happened as a child and or teen or university or whatever. And now look what I'm doing. I'm managing all these people's monies. I'm working as portfolio managers. So just, just for listeners like myself, what, what are a little bit of the origin stories of Ben and Cameron? Cameron, yours is way more interesting. You go ahead. Well, you've got the best story of all, but I mean, mine and Sean, you may have heard this story growing up when I was a little kid. Uh, there's things I wanted to buy as a little kid. One of them was a stereo. So I decided to try to find a business to start. So I was seven years old and started a worm company, worm company, a little worm business, right? Just collecting worms for friends of my father and sold them and built quite a little enterprise selling worms. And then I remember a couple of years later, I, I just delivering papers, discovered as I was doing math in my head, what compound interest is and how long it takes to double your money. So it's just like this massive aha moment for me. When I was young and it was snowing, I remember the day exactly when it happened. And just this whole thing about having a business to help serve people and that creates profit that can then be invested at compound interest to double your money and money starts working for you. This whole thing happened to me by the time I was 10, 11 years old and got lucky enough later on in life to find a career where we could kind of take advantage of both of those mm -hmm. things. But Ben's story is much more dramatic than that. We were camping last weekend. We were up in, by the mountains in Alberta and at the camping store, they had worms for sale for like $7.99. I actually had thought about that story that you had because I was thinking like, wow, what is the inflation of worms? Because that seems like a lot of money for worms. But Yeah, I sold them for a Nikola nightcrawler. And uh, what's a nightcrawler? Oh, like okay, okay. Long worm that you pick up in rainstorms. Okay, sorry, Ben, I cut you off from worms to your story. Yeah, so I, I don't have that kind of cool origin story like Cameron does with the worms. I, I always wanted money as a kid, same kind of thing. And I did have multiple little little businesses, but but I don't think those stories are that interesting. And then I studied engineering, so I had no background in business or, or formal finance education at all. Did Then did an MBA and did an internship at a financial services company, mutual fund and insurance uh, operation. Then I got a job there after the internship and started really getting a feel for how it all works. It was, you know, classic commission-based sales and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't know anything because I was doing my MBA at the time, but I hadn't even taken a finance course yet because you did like the first, I don't know, few core courses and then an internship and then more coursework or something like that. So I, I really knew nothing about investing. I'm learning from all these wholesalers, like mutual fund wholesalers at the at the place that I was working at. They're coming in at, at lunchtime and talking about how smart their managers are and whatever, whatever, what the next play is, how to respond to the current market conditions and all this stuff. And I'm listening like, wow, these guys are like brilliant. They've all got their CF, CFAs and I'm just sitting there like blown away. At some point, someone gave me a speaker report and was like, you know, you're working at this place doing these mutual funds, but like, have you seen this thing? Huh, it's kind of, kind of interesting. And then I remember asking, I, I landed a, a client, a, a meaningful client for, for that type of firm. And I remember asking somebody like, okay, I've got this client that wants to invest their money with us. Like, how do I decide what to invest their money in? And effectively, the answer was, just, just pick, pick a fund company that you like and, and pick a fund. And I was like, whoa. And I had come from an engineering background. So even though I had no or minimal finance knowledge, from an engineering perspective, that was kind of like surprising. Like that's the process. Mm. And then Cameron loves this story. There was a, I, I hustled my way into getting a, a article in the Globe and Mail around this time 
wrote about some active fund and why I liked it and got absolutely roasted in the comments. And you know, it's actually too bad that I think that article is still up, but the Globe and Mail changed their comments engine. So all the comments of me getting absolutely blasted by people are no longer there. So that was another kind of nail in the coffin where I was like, okay, there's at least some people that disagree with what I'm being taught. And eventually I discovered Dimensional Fund Advisors and I called them because they had mutual funds and I, could, I couldn't use ETFs where I was. And I called them and I was like, hey, I want to use your products. And they kind of were like, yeah, not where you are. We don't deal with them. But I'd asked them about the Fama French three-factor model or said that I, that I, I think I'd learned that in one of my classes and I brought it up or something. But that ended up being important because six months later, they called me back because Cameron had mentioned he was looking to hire somebody. And uh, the story was that the person that I had called or talked to at Dimensional was kind of taken aback that this random guy at a mutual fund dealership was asking about the Fama French factors. And so that kind of, they just happened to remember that detail and that led to them calling me and being like, hey, there's a firm in Audible that's looking for somebody. Do you want to meet, meet with them? Yeah. So that brought me to Cameron. Did that bring you to Cameron? Yeah, that was it. Cameron? Oh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I wonder if you asked your mutual fund company if they heard about the Fama French model, they would have been like, huh? Well, there are so many. There are so many different fund companies. And I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if they, I don't yeah. know if they would have. It's so interesting as you explain this story that you have this, I'm assuming at the time young, well, you're young now. So younger engineer, curious to learn. And the advice you get is to give it to, put it in whatever portfolio you see fit, as opposed to relying on like what you guys speak about, evidence-based approaches to investing in I mean, I, I don't think that will be a, a point of the podcast. This one is just that situation there seems, it, it seems interesting to me because I listened to you, Cameron, back in 1994 when Ben was probably shooting hoops at recess, that you were arguing for systematic evidence-based investing at a time when, I don't know, maybe you can talk, touch on your, I guess, what drove you to talk to your firm? I believe it in around early 90s that you need to have a systematic approach that involves evidence-based investing. So maybe, yeah, touch on that. What drove you to have that conversation? It actually even wasn't that. It was, I was sitting in Boston at the Cheers bar, happened to sit with one of the heads of a very large mutual fund company there and had lunch with him. And he said, if you don't go fee-based, you're going to be dead because the world is going fee-based. And we were commission-based selling at the time back and load mutual funds for a commission. We didn't know anything. Just like Ben, I knew nothing. And this is what you sold to make money. You sold mutual fund, you got your 4 or 5% commission. So I came home from that trip, wanting to go fee-based. That's when I discovered PWL at the time, back in 95, 96. So the goal was to go fee-based. And then once you go fee-based, it's like, wait a minute, we're not paid by the product anymore. We can look at indexing because indexing, of course, doesn't pay commissions. And it's just this unbelievable opportunity to look at anything. It just, everything became clearer. And then once you go down the indexing discovery process, you know, you discover people like Larry Swedrow and Paul Merriman and Mark Habner and these people that were writing about the benefits of indexing and asset class investing and systematic investing. And it's just this unbelievable discovery you know, 98, 99, 2000, just as ETS were coming out. And it was just this mind-blowing experience to be able to do all this and get paid by the client, not by the product. So that was, that's what happened to me. And then once you go down that path, 
all roads lead to at least mm-hmm. the discovery of dimensional fund advisors. You know, what I think is so interesting about both of your stories there is that someone has once told me like to grow, you got to go in the skinny branches of a tree where it's uncomfortable because it can break. And it seems like Cameron, whether it's you in the mid 90s saying that we have to go fee based or Ben yourself calling up, calling up a company and being like, hey, let me work for you guys. And now with the converging of both stories, both of your guys' stories with this strong commitment to evidence base, creating a podcast, which is really, I mean, if someone asked me about the Rational Reminder podcast, I would say it's very, very evidence-based, leverages wonderful research and puts it in more layman's terms. What have you guys learned about getting away from the noise and doing your own thing? I mean, Ben, you really, you with conviction, you, you talked about your processes. I'm not a content creator. And I think that's, that's, that ability to get out of the crowd is important. So my question is, what, what drives you guys to remove yourselves from the crowd and just do that very thing that you talked about, Ben, just create what you guys create? I don't know how to get into the crowd. That's, that's part of the, the content creator yeah. thing. You know, I've, I've never, uh, I never really felt like a basketball player, even though I played basketball. I never really felt like a content creator, even though I create content. I don't know. I think it's a deficiency that I have that ends up working out well. What are you? Oh, I don't know. I'm just a, just, just a guy, I think. I don't know. Just I don't know. I thought about that when we had, when we talked to to Jay Van Babel, I tried to think about that. Like what, what groups do I identify with? And that's a, that's a, I find that to be a very difficult question to answer. There's so much of me that wants to dive into that, but how about Mm. you, Cameron? (laughs) That's funny. Ben and I ended up at the same spot, even though Ben is far, obviously more technical than I am. So I think I got lucky that his technical due diligence ended up at the same spot that I ended up. It was unbelievable what was being discovered and what you got to learn and to get into this world where I believe to my core, this is such a great option for so many people and it makes so much sense and it's easy to implement. It's systematic. It's lower cost. You're probably going to end up being above average in your returns. There's so many incredible things about it, yet most of the industry thinks we're nuts. But so many, you know, commentators agree with us. So it's just a funny thing how we're, we do stand out in the industry. We, sp- we speak to a lot of advisors, and clearly a lot of advisors who listen agree with us. I speak to a lot of other advisors who don't agree with us. And that just helps me be comfortable in our belief system because it takes those people to, to duke it out in the markets to make markets efficient on, on pricing, price discovery. But it, I don't know. It's just this. This love of learning, I guess. That love of learning comes through so well on the podcast from both of you. With that, I feel like it's a shared desire to learn. Going back to Ben, when you met Cameron after calling them, and I don't know where you met him, but without sounding too cheesy, it seems like it must have been love at first sight. Like you guys are both these different backgrounds, both the similar perspectives. Maybe just take us to that first meeting where Ben and Cameron sat at a table or wherever you were and how did things progress? Did you just instantly join Cameron's team and then uh, things were just rosy? I had very low salary expectations at the time because I was earning commissions from selling insurance and mutual funds and I hadn't been doing that for very long. So I think I, the year before Cameron hired me, I'd made like $19,000. I don't know if I know this or if I think it, but I, I think that you were worried about me being an expensive hire because I was finishing my MBA and whatever, whatever. And then I asked for Literally, whatever you'll pay me. <laughs> I think that, that you liked that at the time. But we had breakfast. Where was that? 
Elgin Street Diner or something like that. Mayflower. Yeah, we had breakfast and then, and then I met Cameron's wife at the time. And when we had a background connection from earlier, from the, the high school that we both went to. So that was, that was part of it. And she'd worked in the business here and there. So that, that was kind of step two. And then we had a third interview at the office where Cameron got us lunch from the little cafeteria that they had at the bottom of the building at the time. I used profanity in our Ooh. conversation. And Cameron almost didn't hire me because of that. It was his wife at the time that actually convinced him to, to give it a go, despite the fact that I had been profane. So Cameron gave me the feedback. He was like, I think that you're, you're better than that kind of language. And I, and I don't think that you should use it. And then he hired me. Any swearing since? Minimal. <laughs> we're, we're both guilty once in a while. Yeah, but we got, what happened was we, we got super fortunate. We got very busy very quickly. And then Ben discovered his, his gift is much stronger on the client content production side than in necessarily the, the mechanics of being a financial advisor. So we're able to grow the team quickly. And that, that's when, you know, you're doing more presentations, more seminars, and then start on the content side. So it was quite fortunate that we did grow to such a point where we could take advantage of this, this mm. new technology of a podcast and YouTube. And, and I want to touch on that inception point of the podcast, but I'm super curious, Cameron, what did you think of this, this Ben gentleman when he came in? Outside of the swear word, he's coming in and having these conversations. What did you think of him at that time? Okay, well, first of all, Ben's huge. Like Ben's very intimidating. Six foot eleven, Ben. Six eleven. So he's, wow. he's I saw pictures. He's tall. He's he's tall. He's big. Like I'm six three and I, I'm quite small next to Ben. So he's very imposing, very but great credentials, very articulate, but did have as we all did, we all have a lot to learn, but come a long way for sure. But no, it was, it was, it was awesome for sure. But he stood out in a crowd, no doubt about it. Never meeting one event there. You were obviously by far the tallest person yep. at the event. Yeah. A lot of luck. There's a whole lot of luck, right? I mean, a whole lot of hard work, a whole lot of luck. Even like how this, we had no idea. I mean, maybe Ben had the vision of this podcast at the time, but I don't think so. Like we just, literally two guys sat down with a couple of mics and started recording. We had a loose script, but nothing like what it is now and, I want to talk about that inception point of the podcast. So you can hear this both dedication to the evidence-based approach to doing things, whether it's around happiness, good life, portfolio construction. How did you guys get back together? I don't know if you had always worked together. So you hire him, Cameron, and I believe it's a few years later, the podcast starts. So how did you guys decide it was you two? Very closely together. Like when Cameron hired me, I was meeting with clients with Cameron and, and like I would pop into his office every five minutes when we were back in the office or when we were in the office back in the day, ask him questions and stuff. So we spent a ton of time together for a long time. And then I started my YouTube channel and uh, that picked up a little bit of momentum. And I, I was getting more comfortable in front of the camera because we, when I first started doing those videos and you can still watch the old ones that are up, I'm, I'm like super rigid and nervous. It's crazy to watch. We also used to do this thing on the radio together on on Saturdays where we'd go into the radio station and we would take live oh, yeah. call-ins. What, what's, what was that called again? Experts on call. Experts on call. We used to do this radio show, Experts on Call, and I was so nervous then too. So nervous. But that that was all right. So the, the YouTube channel picked up a bit of momentum. And then, like Cameron says, the origin story of the podcast is super underwhelming. I went into his office one day and I was literally just like, hey, let's let's start a podcast. Let's get some mics and, and try it. 
I don't even think that we asked around the rest of our firm for the people we would need support from. We just got the equipment, recorded the audio and and started doing it. And, and then later on, all the people that needed to support us ended up coming to coming to help with, you know, like just graphic design and editing and all the kind of other stuff that has to happen. But at first we just recorded. And yeah. I think the first time we recorded, we we didn't, what did we, we messed something up. We didn't know it recorded in mono. Right. And we, I could only hear it in one <laughs> channel. So we thought we did something wrong. So we did the episode and it came out in mono. Yeah. <laughs> like we didn't know. And so Cameron, what did you think? This, this Ben comes into your office and like, let's do, let's record a podcast. You're just sure. Let's do it. Well, back then we were trying to create all sorts of content for the website to drive SEO. And so many of our colleagues were doing white papers and videos and Ben said, let's try this. And I don't know if there's any other podcast. I don't know if the couch potato was out then or not. not. I don't recall. Maybe it was. Not sure. So we just started doing it. We, We got it going and had a few guests on and then we knew a few people. So we asked a few other people and then we get in this cadence of one week us, one week a guest. But I was looking today, actually, it was quite a while before we had an actual academic on the podcast. It was, we're into like, into the 50s or 60s episodes before we had a, a true academic. And then, you know, the big breakthrough, I think, was when we had Professor Ken French come on for episode 100. That was a pretty, pretty fortunate guest to get. Fantastic episode. And then once you get good guests, good guests help you get more good guests. And then we've had this ability to discover, I say, especially Ben's discovered some academics that you might not have heard of, but who have been unbelievably interesting guests that have come on. So those are the, those are really cool ones to find, though, those undiscovered gems that have had incredible research that's very meaningful and they're really interesting people to talk to. Those are really cool to find. So we spend a considerable amount of time now and that's something we've always done, Ben and I. We're always kind of poking around the industry. Ben more so on research. I'm more so on kind of the business side of the industry. And there's so many people each of us know that you know, you're two degrees of separation from so many people. We kind of bounce ideas. How do you reach out and how do you find these people? How do you convince them to come on? Who would be a good guest? So that's getting a little bit easier as time goes by. You know, you talked about how it wasn't until a few episodes into start of the podcast that you got an academic working at an institution. So podcasts work, we evolve over time. 250 some episodes later, what shifts or evolutions have you noticed when you reflect back at the podcast that have been most meaningful to you? Either of you can take this question. Like Cameron said, we, we started getting more academic researchers as guests. I like that a lot. I think that's been a positive evolution. But that's also debatable because you could have a great podcast without having academic guests. So I don't know, maybe more of a reflection of my personal taste. But I think, Cameron, you agree that the, the direction we've done, we've gone with that has been overall pretty positive. Very much so. And we, we very much take the, as, as you know, Sean, kind of the Larry King approach. Like we don't really push hard on guests when they say things we don't agree with. We take some flack for that, but we try to keep the, the questions you know, simple, short, that's very much Ben's way of, of, of influence and have interesting people and let's hear what they have to say. I really appreciate it, not pushing back or trying to challenge them. And I guess I just think, yeah, podcasts, you welcome them on as a guest and you certainly treat your guests in a way that they can highlight their story. So I've always appreciated that your podcast is we can, as the listener, we can experience your guest's story through these, these great questions. And 
my mind's going that I, I've heard you guys talk about the, the evolution of question answering or questions to these short questions that just shifted over to the client or the guest. Do you have any meaningful milestones in the podcast that you can look back to and think, wow, that was pretty neat or ones that have shifted away in, you, in your thinking? Well, we've had big milestone guests like having Ken French on and having Gene Fama on. Those were sort of engineered milestones. Like we made those into milestone episodes and they, they because they were the 100 and, and 200, 100th episode. I'd have to go look and see who the first one was. We started having guests on talking about the relationship between money and happiness and, and overall well-being as, as opposed to just portfolio optimization or whatever or, or financial planning optimization. That was a meaningful shift for the podcast, but also for our, our business. Like that's something that our financial planners focus on with clients now. Not that it was ignored before, but we didn't have the research to back up what we were suggesting to clients. We didn't have the type of frameworks that we have in place now to make sure that we're touching on those areas. So that was kind of a big transformation, both on the content side, but also on the business side. And that, that's probably a cool example of something where some, something that we learned from the podcast ended up trickling into the business and that now it's become a meaningful aspect of both the podcast and the, and the business. We've had giants lately, like Bert Malkiel, Charlie Ellis, I mean, these are people that we've been reading for decades, right? Nobel laureate Bob Merton was incredible conversation. Astronaut Chris Hadfield was another one. But that was one that I think a lot of people actually skipped that episode because it wasn't part of the main thrust of the podcast. We went back and said, like, this is one you really should listen to. It's an incredible conversation. Yep. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. It's so interesting that, like, I think, Ben, do you, I heard it was 10 years ago you joined PWL. And here you are being inspired to have a phone call based on, on a piece of research. And then I can't remember if you said it's episode 100, 200. You have him on the podcast. It must be a bit of an enjoyable or surreal moment for you. Yeah. There's, lot, there's lots of those, though, because it's like, I mean, Cameron just mentioned a few of the names. John Campbell was another one recently where you spend so much time reading the research of someone or reading the books that someone's written or whatever. And then you get the opportunity to talk to them and ask them questions that you might have wondered when you're going through their stuff. That That's a cool experience. And yeah, Fama and French were, were big ones following that example. But some of the other names that Cameron just mentioned were just as significant. Like it's, it's, it is, it is very cool. The guys that you read about in, in your finance textbook and then you're talking to them like that, that's a neat experience. You had to get, what, 61 questions with Professor Fama on a good Friday when we had a chance to yeah. talk to him. It was, it was, for me, surreal. I mean, you leave the office or your, your house smiling that day, hey? Yeah, no doubt. You know, something that I've really noticed, and I mean, your, your listeners for sure, because it's about them, is the value of creating communities. I feel like you guys have done such a fascinating job creating a community around theme of this systematic evidence-based approach to our financial lives and your communities that you've built seem so vibrant, whether it's the online community, the meetups that you guys are doing now, the reading challenges, and even these discuss are the talking sense cards, I think create a sense of community when you would talk about them because people can reflect and maybe talk to their significant others about the question. So this idea of community, I think can't be underestimated as it really brings people together and creates these connections. And you guys obviously are seeing those. With that in mind, 
I'd love to know from both of you about the significance of building these nurturing communities for the Rational Reminder podcast. And what does that mean to you, I guess, if anything at all? Well, the first meetup we had was in London, and we just threw the idea out there as I happened to be at a conference there, and I was, I was blown away. I mean, it was an incredible group of people. And now we've had two since then, and the profile of the people is so consistent. You know, people that care, people that are smart, people that are interesting, people that are, they wanted to meet each other. Now, of course, there's selection bias because people come to a meetup are probably looking to meet other people, of course. But they were, you know, grateful, intelligent. They love meeting each other, love talking about these ideas, had other, had feedback for us on, on the podcast. Some people are incredibly into the podcast that they take their own custom notes of many episodes. And they were sharing those notes. So there, there's a lot of really engaged, smart people out there that do care about this stuff because it does matter. You know, you say they do care because it does matter. Those were your words. I think the attraction that your podcast has really shows that this does matter. And there, you, have, you have touched many, many people like over the 5 million listeners that we're seeking this type of information. So I think it's just a testament to the impact you guys are having on so many people's lives. Sure. But we're just, I think we're just the vehicle, right? These ideas are out there. We're just helping bring these ideas to, to life, right? There's not, not necessarily a lot of original ideas that we come very, up with. Very, very few, very few. We're just the conduit. I mean, that's what, you know, Gene Fama has told us, right? That these ideas were coming. He happened to be the right guy at the right place when these ideas and technology happened to to connect back in the 60s and 70s, right? So right mm -hmm. right people, right place, right time. So we're very much similar. I, I was laughing because you're saying that we're the conduit. And, and one of the comments that we got once in, in the iTunes, whatever, where you can leave a comment or review, someone said something along the lines of, even when the podcast content goes over my head, I like listening to, listening to their voices. <laughs> so, something like that. But it's true. Like that's just part of this whole <laughs> thing is that we, we happen to have voices that people seem to like to listen to. I don't know. That's another one of those random little lucky things where if we had annoying voices or, or voices that for whatever reason people didn't like listening to or a different, different cadence of speaking or something that people didn't like listening to, that could change the whole thing. Because we're not the only people talking about this stuff. And I don't think we're saying it necessarily in a special way. It's just, it's just a funny, another little detail where people, people happen to like our voices. I think from a, from a view that like you talk about this conduit, and this is just an observation of mine, is that the information's out there, but you guys are, are committing to being that conduit. And I think that's where a lot of people do appreciate. And like somebody, ha somebody, not everyone's taking that challenge. And True. you guys definitely are doing that. And I think for the listeners, we're thankful for that. Well, look at the episode that Ben, you did. Was it financial literacy? I don't know, a month or so ago. How many papers did you know. cite in that remember. one a bunch. episode? Like it was, it was dozens. Like just to do one could have been an episode. There were dozens. Like that is no joke. You get that much information boiled down into a 30 or 40 minute segment that Ben will do as a deep dive. It's incredibly valuable. So yes, that, that is, that is certainly special. I think that's, well, I, I speak for myself. That's the, the, the depth of knowledge that goes into these podcasts is certainly the part that attracts me. I want to, I want to shift to the, the papers, Ben, that you've written, and I'm sure, Cameron, I know you have a big part in this shift towards a good life. What is well-being? How does it integrate into our financial plans? 
I often use this analogy about a sailboat to explore financial lives and our money stories. And these two papers specifically made me think about it. it. Finding and funding a good life and the goals summary survey. Over the years, I've come to realize, like, look at money is, is not the boat of the sail or it's not the boat of life. It's rather these wind in the sails. So like the good life is the boat and the money is the wind in the sails. And these, these papers made me think of that. Whereas the sales are the investment, the tools, the portfolios that we have that can take us to wherever we're going. And the boat represents this good life, the life that we have so we can enjoy the journey on the way. And at times, the narrative in our industry could be like, build up the biggest savings account, get the best investments, focus on the nuance of the smallest, slightest basis point. But yet, I've heard you guys many times, if you don't or many times on the podcast, if you don't have the other things under control, maybe that basis point isn't as important as you think. So with this idea in mind about the sailboat, I really appreciate that you guys bring in the good life because there have been many people, we probably both are all three of us have known and listeners know that end up sailing through life, so to speak, only to realize that they went in the wrong direction or ended up on this wrong island. So the question is for, for you guys both is, why is it so significant that you bring in papers like finding, which is an important word there, and funding a good life and the goal survey to help people not only construct these wonderful portfolios, but also navigate the journey so that they can themselves arrive to an island that truly aligns with what they want? We started from really podcast guest conversations, we started realizing the importance of taking this stuff into account when giving people financial advice. So we spent a lot of time, including engaging some of those podcast guests, with, well, I'll say Brian Portnoy, who has a, a firm right now called Shaping Wealth. He'd written a book, The Geometry of Wealth, and we had him on to talk about that. And it was, it was a powerful message. And we actually had him come to our firm to, to give trainings to our employees. And we did that for quite a while. And then that was super helpful. And I was part of a lot of those trainings. And as much as Brian wrote a fantastic book in The Geometry of Wealth, I was having, I was having trouble figuring out how do we take this and make it actionable and, and, and useful for our, our, our advisors to use in client meetings. And not to say that Brian's trainings didn't help with that, but I, I wanted something very, very, very practical that our advisors could take and apply the information. So with that, with Finding a Funny and Good Life, I tried to take what we'd learned from Brian and from a whole bunch of other people, podcast guests and other books that we had read. And I tried to condense it into something that, say, like a new advisor at PWL or an advisor who hadn't been trained on these concepts yet could sit down and read the paper and get a grasp of at least the, the broad strokes. But then the other thing that I did in that paper is I put lists of questions at the end of each, each section where you could add the advisor could ask the client or whoever the person is reading it happens to be could ask themselves to make the, the conceptual inf information directly, practically useful to their lives. So that, that was the, the whole basis of that paper was how do we take this and make it relatively easy to apply these, these pretty abstract concepts to financial decision-making. So that was kind of the idea there. And then the goals, the goals survey summary paper was the same kind of idea where we wanted to give people a tool that they could, if they're sitting down thinking about what are my, what are my goals, which is a big question, we know from that research and other research that we cited in doing that research that people are generally not very good at figuring out what their goals are. So we wanted to give people a tool to, to use for exactly that purpose, which is what we got. We got our goals master list by doing that survey project, which is, of course, just a, 
a sample of goals, but still, I think it's a pretty cool tool where if someone's sitting down thinking, what are my goals? What do I want, want to achieve? What is this money for? If they say, these are what our goals are, we can now give them this thing that's a, a real tool and say, do any of these resonate with you? Or did, what, should any, any of these be on your list that maybe you missed on your first pass of figuring out what your goals are? So anyway, to summarize, in both cases, the idea was to make an extremely practical tool that our advisors or whoever wants to access the papers because they're free online, a, an extremely practical tool for people to use. Yeah, those questions, I think you did, you've done such a, a good job integrating the theory and the, the broader concept, which can sometimes be quite subjective. And you've been able to really make it applicable, like you said, was your, was your goal. But I think that, that paper is just wonderful, both of them. And I know that I heard from other people listening to the episode when you unpacked the goal survey, just how much it allowed them, even though they didn't participate in the survey, allowed them to realize that, oh, here's some of my goals. This is what I'm really thinking. How about you, Cameron? As you guys have added more and more, what is a good life? Happiness and well-being, whether it's guests or the papers. Why is this important to you? Oh, it's so important because I think largely investing has been figured out. It's not that difficult now to get a great portfolio at very low cost. All these other things, I think they play a much bigger part in in our lives. Life is messy. We're messy. Humans are messy. You can't spreadsheet everything in a human's life. So you have to make decisions around trade-offs and what is important. And look back over your life, stuff happens, right? People get divorce and there's death and there's all kinds of things that happen, right? That that can affect your financial life. So you can't spreadsheet the whole thing. But we had incredible guests like Hal Hirschfield talking about your future self. What are you going to be like in the future? How to change with Katie Milkman. Setting goals, getting things done with Islet Fishbach from Chicago. But these people have spent their careers learning about how people can improve over time. Unreal conversations. How can you not explore this just from a pure curiosity standpoint? So I, I really like the mix that we've got now between the technical investing, this year we're more back to basics, and then you mix in some of this um, behavioral side. It's mm -hmm. so fascinating. It really is. Cameron, I felt like your body was more into that question, so uh, I, I feel like... <laughs> I love it. I just, I just, I'm, I mean, both Ben and I are really into this stuff. Like, we're talking often during the week, like, more than often. But we've, we just got in this zone of curiosity, and this is an outlet for us to bring this curiosity to, to people, try to make a difference. I mean, ultimately, that's why we're all doing this, right? We're, we all want to have a better life and, and, and leave the, the world a better place for, for the mm -hmm. efforts that we're, we're doing. So with the original title here, and still the same title, Rational Reminder, Sensible and Rational Decision Making, over the, since like, I think it was August 2018, the first episode, has that understanding or perception of what that means changed, stayed constant? Both of you seem like you're very, in certain areas, very uh, steadfast in your vision. But both of you have shown today that you're also very flexible and curious and able to learn. So I'm wondering when someone says, or when you guys say rational decisions, sensible investing, has that changed at all? Like what that means to you? Well, I think that the sensible investing and financial decision making is pretty broad so that you know mm -hmm. i think that's a very flexible statement it can be interpreted many ways i think that the uh, speaking of just luck i think the name of the podcast as we've learned more 
ended up being basically perfect for the, where the, the direction of the content has gone. I mean, rational reminder, it's like w- what we aim to do on our podcast is show people what a rational agent would do in various situations, how they would make a decision. But then we leave lots of room for what an actual human would do. But I think that having the, the rational basis for what, sh- what should the answer to this question be or whatever, I think that's always a sensible starting point. So anyway, I think that the, just the idea of a rational reminder, what would a rational person do in this situation? Okay, I'll take that into consideration. What should I actually do based on my humanness? I, I really think, I don't, I don't know if we could think of a better title if we tried to make a new one today. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think of, I can't recall what episode, it was a couple of years ago where, forget the individual's name, where he was talking about emotions and how we're all emotionally driven by the decisions we make. And your explanation there, I think it's really important that Yes, while we can't always make 100% rational decisions based on the models, having the rational decisions as a benchmark, knowing that we have these emotions that influence us, it, it's, I guess it acts as this guiding light post as opposed to being like, I'm, I got emotions, I can't make good financial decisions. Yep. I think you're referring to Leonard Mladenov, the episode with Leonard Mladenov where he talks about how... Uh, we, we actually titled that episode Emotions Are Rational because he talked about how emotions are, are like... Yeah, uh, that's right. Like yeah. How about you, Cameron, with the rational reminder title? Oh, I mean, Ben came up with it. I think it is perfect. Mm-hmm. It's also mm-hmm. same number of letters. I mean, the logo works. The whole thing works. It, was, it is perfect. I think the artwork turned mm-hmm. out great. But who knew, right? We didn't know. You know, you guys are super humble and I appreciate that. I think... What I really, really see out of both of you is like I kind of alluded to already, you have a, a steadfast vision on what you're you're trying to trying to deliver, but this curiosity allows you to 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 play a little and experience new perspectives. And I think that's part of this luck that you talk about so frequently. <laughs> As you guys look into the future, what direction is this sailboat, so to speak, going? I know you've talked about CE credits. Is there anything that you're excited about with the, I mean, probably many things, but as you look ahead, what excites you the most about the Rational Reminder podcast? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer to the question. I don't, I don't I mean, it's, it's amazing the type of guests that we're able to get just by asking. I mean, we mentioned John, John Campbell as being a, a recent memorable episode. And that's a guy who doesn't do very many podcasts. I don't know if I've found any podcast that he'd been on previously because I usually try and listen to guests on other podcasts to help think about what questions to ask them. I don't know if he had done any. He's done like seminars and stuff like that, but uh, not not podcasts as far as I could find. So the the ability to go to somebody like that who doesn't normally do this kind of thing and say, hey, we've got a podcast and this is who our past guests have been, which is something that we we usually do. We'll say, you know, we, we would like to invite you to our podcast. Here's some of the people that you might know who have been on recently. And that list now is is a list that it would be hard for a lot of people to not want to be a part of, I think. And mm-hmm. so go, going, making those outbound requests to, to very prominent people, I, I think that, that alone is very exciting. I mean, even this year, we've been able to book a whole bunch of people who, again, don't do a, a ton of podcasts, but they see who else we've we've spoken with. And I, I know um, John Cochran, who is like, you know, he's a former president of the American Finance Association. He's a very well-respected economist. And he posted our episode on his blog and said that we, um, we were unusually well-prepared and asked great questions. <laughs> so I often link to that when I'm 
asking someone to come on yeah. so they can see that, you know, we, we really do, we put a ton of time into preparing the questions that we want to ask. Cameron mentioned that we're intentional about keeping the questions short and concise, but we put many hours into, I mean, like days in a lot of cases into preparing questions that we're going to ask. Dan, how many guests have said to us, you guys actually read my book. Yeah, or you read my papers or whatever. Yeah. So of course you read It's, it's a lot book. of work though. Like we, we read, yeah. you know, in some cases, I don't know, 10 or 15 academic papers or if it's a book, we read the entire book and then, and then maybe a couple of the other books that they've written if they've written multiple books. But we really try to dig out all the information that we can. But I think guests appreciate that too. And because we put a lot of thought into the questions, we always ask questions that we know the guest has a good answer to. Like we don't ask open-ended questions. We don't ask sweeping questions. We ask questions that we know from their research or from their book or whatever that they have a good answer to. And so that allows us to ask a ton of questions because they've got a very, very good answer to each one of them. And so I think that we're, we're able to really capitalize on the time that we have with each guest and extract just, I mean, that sounds kind of bad. I don't mean, it sounds like we're using the guest. We're able to get a ton of information from each conversation by setting the questions up that way. Where, where we're at right now, what I find exciting is that we can approach pretty, it feels like, maybe this is overconfidence, maybe my, my humble edge is going <laughs> away right now, but it feels like we can approach pretty much anyone, at least in the academic world, probably most authors too, and say, you know, we'd like to come on our podcast and get them to come on. So that, that's exciting. There's more people than we can than we can book in a, any given year. So looking at the list of potential guests that we have is also exciting. I don't know. That's a, I'm dragging on here. What are you excited about, Cameron? I think it should be listened to by many more people. At the risk of sounding self-serving, the caliber of these conversations is just, in my opinion, off the charts. Like to take the Ken French episode, the Gene Fom episode. Those are applicable to anybody and to be listened by whatever the number has been 30, 40,000 people. That's like a drop in a drop of the bucket of, of the population that listens to podcasts. I get there's lots of competition. I understand that, but those and many other episodes, there's many, many great episodes that deserve to be downloaded millions of times because they are just such great conversations. I, I don't think you'll find another podcast with Ken French or Gene Fama. It's a couple, but not many. And the, the caliber of those conversations was so good. You know, but Gene, we got in 61 questions, for example, like just crisp, clean, insightful answers from someone who's been studying asset pricing models since before I was born. I'm the oldest one here. Like he's been studying this since the 60s. And you get Gene Fama for an hour and 20 minutes, clean answers. It's just, it's, it's, everyone should listen to that, that interview. Yeah. I mean, there, there's another question you really leaned into. It wasn't even a question. It was, it was going off a of bend, but you can see Cameron, just that's the part what I assume gets you excited about these podcasts. For sure. I mean, those are big names, right? But we have others that may mm -hmm. not be big household names that were just as incredible conversations. That's why just as a habit, I am a big fan of the atomic habits, of course, just get in the habit like, like you do every Thursday morning and pick a, pick a podcast and learn, right? I said this age of, of people fighting for your attention and TikTok and reels and everything else is like, is that really helping you compared to taking an hour a week or a couple hours a week? 
the, the content is available through the podcast medium now is unbelievable. Kind of anything you want to know and learn about. Well, we've all got financial issues. Pick a great financial podcast to learn about this stuff. I think the reason that I find the stuff that I mentioned with guests being, uh, why I find that exciting is, is that we've, we've learned a ton over the course of however many episodes that we've done. And I'm sure we've changed our views on lots of different things. But I look back on my past self, you know, a year ago or two years ago or whatever, and there's so much that I just didn't know. The forced cadence of doing a serious amount of work to understand, like take an academic researcher that we've decided we want to have on our podcast, and then I've got to take a week or whatever, or we've got to take a week or a few days or whatever it is, and go through all of their research and think of questions to ask them. That means that we don't, we don't need to obviously get to their level of understanding of their own research, but it means we need to consume their research and understand what their viewpoints are and stuff like that. And that, that is, I find, a, a really, really good way to, to learn. So that, that also, f- imagining all of the stuff that I'll learn in the next whatever, year, two years, five years, that's, it's both exciting and intimidating. Because I also look back at my former self and be like, oh man, that guy didn't know anything. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't that mean that you're recognizing the Dunner-Kruger oh. effect? That you're like, wait, the more I know, I actually didn't know, which is a good thing. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I see the time here, and I know you guys are both busy. There's a lot of research, and Ben, this is rooted in research, that playing and creativity is a good way to learn. So you guys both have children. If or when they are old enough to explain what the Rational Reminder podcast did for Canadians and I guess across the world, people listen everywhere, what would make your heart just sing for them to say? I see both of you just be like, what? <laughs> I was thinking about the answer. My son does listen and he does get a lot out of it. Now he works in our company, so he's engaged in this industry. I, I have an objective of getting my daughter to listen to some of the guests. She's not quite as engaged in this, but hopefully they, are, they would say it's made a difference for some people. Yep. My kids don't listen to the podcast. They know that I have a podcast. And they always ask when I come out of my office, were you recording a podcast? Mm-hmm. They're younger than Cameron's kids, though. Right. Um, so how about when they're old enough? Yeah, yeah. And well, they went I, to the I, whole portfolio. Yeah, I, I think it's the same thing as, as Cameron, that I would want them to think that, we, that it, it's a, a thing that helped people make better decisions, which is kind of the objective of the, of the podcast. So that's, that's kind of how I would want anybody to view what we have done and what we're trying to do. The challenge is, is making, well, it's kind of what we talked about earlier, make, making the relatively dense information that we're presenting digestible to a lot of people. And like Cameron said, there's a few people who listen to our podcast in the grand scheme of things, but it's, you know, not a huge podcast. There's not millions and millions of people listening. We have whatever, uh, several million all-time downloads, but that's from probably, I don't know, maybe 200,000 people or something like that. And there's much fewer than that that listen every week. So yeah, I, I think that's that, that part is tricky. Like we want to be, we want to provide good information. We want to help people make better decisions, but we want to keep it entertaining and interesting. Yeah. So I guess the more people that it can impact and we've got to find that balance, but the more people that it can impact, the better. And that's kind of why the last few episodes have not been that basic. Like we did covered calls and structured products. For, but for a lot of this year, we were trying to go back to like the basic fundamentals of personal finance to try and find broader appeal. And I don't know how successful that's been because our download numbers have not increased a ton. They've been uptaking slowly, but it's not a huge hockey stick or anything like that. 
Yeah. So anyway, it's finding that balance is tricky. How do we provide the type of information that we want to provide to people, but make it broadly appealing so we can help a lot of people? That That's not so easy. I think the the best thing that we can hope for is that the people who do listen and, and who do get really engaged like you take the information that we provide and use it to help other people make better decisions, other people in their lives that they have influence over. And I think that I think that we are successful in that sense because the people that are really engaged listeners, I think, do end up being sort of people that within their group of friends are trusted for this kind of information. Anyway. You know, your answer makes me think of something that I've observed, kind of going on Seth Godin's notion of if you throw a bag, I think he says, of purple dye in the ocean, you barely notice it. But if you throw it in a smaller lake, you might see more of an impact. And I see like, like, yes, you have millions of downloads, but of course there's almost 8 billion people in the world. Something that I notice from the online communities and just people talking though, is your audience seems to not just absorb or hear information, but like use the information. And this goes to Cameron's idea of the tiny or atomic habits is like, a lot of us collect information, but we don't do it. It feels like what you guys are have enabled the listeners to do is really embodying that that knowledge so they the, become it, and then real lasting financial changes happen. So, I noticed that from what you guys are doing. We see that online too. Like we we have whatever you call it, like social listening tools, where we can see if somebody mm-hmm. on the internet mentions Rash Reminder, mentions Ben Felix or Cameron Passmore. I see it in there where people will refer back to our. Like, you know, if someone says something on Reddit, like, I'm going to do this or whatever, I'm going to make this decision. And someone will say, well, hold on, you should listen to this podcast episode first. So that stuff like that is like, that's, that's what I love to see. So I think you're right. Even if, even if millions and millions of people aren't listening, I think that there is a reverberation across other social platforms. So we have been making a song about the Rational Reminder podcast. And my final question, this is it. It's another open-ended one, but I've asked, the last 150 guests on my podcast, this question. So this is another playful one that is not rooted in, or rooted, keep saying rooted, rooted in uh, academia. Let's imagine you guys are both on a front porch, separate from each other. You're at an end of life, however old you are. And you decide to take a notebook out to write what you learned about having a happy, healthy relationship with money. And you were going to give this letter to your children's children, so your grandchildren, what would be just a theme to that letter? So front porch is very important to me. Interesting you mentioned front porch. I get great pleasure out of our front porch. I grew up in a house that had a big front porch. Much of our life growing up was on the front porch with friends and family. So, and a front porch on a house is not really that expensive to have a front porch, but I knew when we bought this house, I wanted a front porch. So it's to have that awareness of something that may not be that expensive, be it a front porch, be it my Kindle. My Kindle, for whatever it costs to buy a Kindle, gives me endless hours of happiness. And and I would say to understand what makes you happy, going back to Ben's mm. paper, and, and what is enough. Your comment on the front porch, I know you guys have talked about Ed Diener before at some point on the podcast. I had his son on my podcast, and he told me that before Ed passed, he said the key to happiness is to build a big front porch. I have a front porch too. They're lovely. Hmm. Me too. How about you, Ben? The, the theme is probably that there's there's diminishing returns to consumption and money is a means to happiness, not an end itself. Something like that. Well, you guys, thank you so much. I know the open-ended questions can be, uh, you know, we're not prepared for those, but I thank you for participating and, and joining me today. 
I'm going to invite Roothub on, who has been listening, and I don't know how he does it. In real time, he's going to make maybe the, the first Rational Reminder theme song. Not theme song, but song based on this conversation. He is in Oahu, Hawaii. Hey, guys. Can you hear me? Hey, Cameron. Yeah. Hey, Ben. Um, greetings from the Lanai. <laughs> well, we, it's like a porch out here. Um, yeah, thank you for you know what you're doing with people that work is like so important to help people kind of understand that, yes, they can make these decisions too as well. Um, and like, you know, one of my heroes um, of like cognitive neuroscience and like research driven stuff is uh, Professor Sarah Wilson at a University of Melbourne. And she, her research has helped me understand the conduit I am. And her research shows, one of the things it shows is like the absolute most efficient way to recharge our brain is by singing together. Um, so with that, I've been distilling, I take that part of the, you know, systems of what we're doing. And, and now it's time to go surfing because I really never know where these songs are going to go or end up. So it's like a mixture of two. Uh, okay. Rational reminder. Focus on the message and you unlock the key Standing tall in integrity Rational reminder of the marginal gains That add up when you invest every day can worm your way inching forward every day compound interest coming into view or in the abracadabra that money's working for you and the rational reminder of the margin of gain They 
time root hub don't know how you do it <laughs> that song didn't ex- exist until like a couple minutes ago uh, yeah that was that's cool. crazy wow thanks so much oh that's i mean when we help each other amplify each other's stories man like that's such a sweet spot so thank you guys for um you know being good conduits and then allowing me to reflect that mm-hmm. and surfing with us and this stuff and uh yeah there's a i recorded it into a, uh, a recording application cool. to give you, give you guys a version of that well root hub love it thank you so yeah. much and thanks cameron and ben thank you so much i uh, i appreciate guys' time thanks for the good work you're doing thanks guys appreciate it thanks for the invite sean thank you for tuning in this week i hope you enjoyed that episode as much as i did If you're still listening, perhaps that means you did enjoy it. If that's the case, I would love if you could head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review. I definitely recommend you checking out the Rational Reminder podcast as it's an excellent source of information. Until next week, have yourself a good one. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. Now I read freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life, it's just the wind in the sea.